Church, if you want to follow along this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 11. So I want to invite you to open up your, your Bibles to John chapter 11. I'm going to be covering most of the story, but we're not going to have a scripture reader this morning because we're just going to be kind of hitting it throughout the sermon. And so I would encourage you to have your Bible open so you can follow along with the story. Last week we covered John 10, 21 through 42, which was really a turning point in Jesus's ministry. Because up until this point, um, Jesus's, you could say, primary focus has been the unbelieving masses. It's been the crowds of people that have not yet professed faith in his name. And really his signs were intent and focused on being able to convince these unbelieving masses that he is genuinely the Messiah, the Son of God. But after his rejection in Jerusalem last week, what we see this week is that there's a, this kind of shift where he is going to be turning from the unbelieving masses and really intent on focusing more on the faithful few followers that he has. And that's certainly what we see in John 11 as his final and climactic sign is performed, interestingly enough, not for the unbeliever, but to confirm and strengthen the faith of his followers. So with that said, let's pray. Ask the Lord's grace and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you because you have loved us by giving us the perfect gift of your son. And Lord, we recognize that even now we are his sheep, Lord, the sheep of his hand that you have given into his hand, Lord. And we just pray this morning that you would grow us in our glorying of the son Lord, and that we, his sheep, his followers, his people, Lord, would be built up as we see him with ever greater clarity. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I don't know if you would fall into this category, but um, no one ever told me, well, I don't remember it anyway, that following Christ was going to make my life more difficult. I'm not saying it was never said, but I feel as if there were a lot of implications or a thousand tiny things that kind of built up to this idea that, that mainly what God wanted us to do was to get us to Christ and that once we believed in him, the primary job of Jesus was to get us comfortably to heaven or get us to heaven with as few bumps and bruises as possible. And that really the, the idea was that once you had faith, the primary thing Jesus wanted you to do was not to lose faith. And I find that interesting because among other passages, John 11 absolutely obliterates that idea, does it not? Jesus seems to be operating in John 11 with a very different agenda than let's just keep this group of followers as comfortable as we possibly can until they arrive safely at home. In fact, it seems as if he's quite willing to allow his followers to undergo quite a bit of pain in pursuit of a deeper trust. And ultimately, what I'm going to say this morning is a deeper grasp of his glory. It seems that what Jesus desires for us, far more than our immediate comfort, is that we would believe so that we can behold more of his glory. 
Now, if you've heard John 11 before and haven't seen that, my hope is that you will begin to see it as we kind of unfold this story piece by piece. And I think there are actually five parts to this story. You could say five acts to this unfolding story. And yes, you heard me, five, folks. I can count higher than three. We're going to see it in Jesus' purpose, his plan, the points, his pain, and his power. But first, we open with Jesus' purpose. His purpose is to show his glory. So John begins by introducing us to these new characters in the gospel of John and really this new tension. So in verse 1 we read, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. All right, so in the story of John, we have not been introduced to Jesus or to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you're familiar with the Bible stories, you've read other gospels, you know a little bit about this family, but they were apparently a very tight-knit part of Jesus's inner circle. They weren't traveling with him, but it seems that they knew him well, and they lived in the town of Bethany, which was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And so kind of at the opening of this story, we have this this group of people that were very apparently confident that Jesus loved them, part uh, part of his inner circle, these people that he knew well that are dealing with a situation. And I think it it must be noted that if you notice in verse 2, it says, it was Mary who anointed his feet with oil and wiped it with her hair. Do you guys remember that happening in John yet? No, because it hasn't happened, right? And it's interesting that John here in the story actually points forward to something that will happen, which kind of hints at this reality that by the time he writes this gospel, this story of Mary anointing Jesus with her hair had kind of made its rounds in the Jewish and Christian circles. And so they kind of knew this family based on that event, which I think even just ties it more closely to the context of first century Palestine, right? Interesting. But the problem is that this person, that, or this, this family that Jesus loved, that Jesus knew, and had enough confidence in Jesus that they actually sent him a letter, sent him a messenger saying, the one whom you love is ill. They had enough confidence that Jesus would hear this and that Jesus would respond by intervening in his illness. And yet through all of that, we see both their confidence and their desperation. Jesus responds in this way in verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let me read this again. He hears of this illness, and he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So first off, he's going to say, kind of on the front end, just so everybody knows, this is not leading to death. Now, it doesn't mean that Lazarus is not going to die, as we know, but it does mean that it's not going to ultimately end in death. So he, he gives that kind of caveat, but then he moves into something that's really interesting. He says that this illness was so that, or had the purpose of, the Son being glorified through it. 
Now, I think it's really easy to hear this idea of him being glorified and to think, my goodness, isn't Jesus callous? This man is on his deathbed and he's thinking about his glory. But what's interesting is that I think even John recognizes this could be as a misunderstanding because as he continues in verse 5, we read this. Now, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister, Lazarus. In other words, he cared deeply about them. Even though what they were walking through was ultimately so that the Son could be glorified, Jesus cared about what was happening to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you have to have that in your mind to understand what's going to happen in verse 6. Because what's going to happen in verse 6 is going to, is going to make you scratch your head. Because it says in verse 5 that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But then in verse 6 we read this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, this is where you really should be scratching your head. It's just said he loved him. He just heard that he was going to die. And he says, because of that, he stayed right where he was for two, two more days. What's going on? I think first thing we need to see is that when Jesus loves someone, sometimes that he do, sometimes he does not do what they want. And I think even through this, what we see is that God's purposes in all he does is that the Son would be glorified. And this is not inconsistent at the same time with his love for us. In fact, it's his love that moves him to act so that, so that we may see his glory. So let me, let me unpack this for just a moment. The reason that Jesus does not move to do what they want him to do is because he loves them, but also because he has a, a primary purpose that his son, that Jesus would be glorified through it. And I think if we remember this reality that he doesn't do what we ask him to do, but always because he's got a plan and a purpose to glorify his name through that situation. And at the same time, when he doesn't answer us, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us, but sometimes because he does. I think that is a great help for us that when we walk through hard times and we pray and it doesn't seem like God answers, that that doesn't mean that there is no point or purpose in it. And it also doesn't mean that he does not love us. Do you see that? And I just think if you were in a situation right now where you are praying for something and you do not hear God answer and you do not, he is not responding to you in the way that, that you want him to, I just want to encourage you that God has a plan and a purpose for it in and for the glory of God, but also for your good. And it may be very hard to see that in the moment, but it is his love, not his ambivalence to you, that keeps him from answering you in the timeline that you are hoping for right now. And this moves us to the second act of the story. So from Jesus' purpose to reveal his glory, next we see Jesus' plans to build the faith of his followers. And so as we pick up in verse 7, after... He says, let's wait. And then in verse 7, it says, Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So finally what happens is Jesus, after hearing the message that Mary and Martha were sick, and Lazarus, or Lazarus was sick from Mary and Martha, he tells them he's, it's not going to end in death, but for the glory of God. He says, we're not going to go just yet because I love them. Then he decides, after an amount of time, after two days, okay, let's go. 
Now, as soon as he says that to his disciples, they have a problem, don't they? And if you read a few verses later in the text, what you'll see is that their problem is that they still remember that at the end of chapter 10, the Jews were seeking to kill him. They tried to stone him. They tried to arrest him. And he just barely, it seems like somehow, how or another, he got away. But in all of that situation, there is still this present danger about being near Jerusalem. And so the disciples are saying, Jesus, why do you want to go to Bethany? It's far too close. There's too much danger. But Jesus makes it very clear that it is still his time to do ministry and that he must do what the Father wants. And so he explains what his purposes are in verse 14, where we read this. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Again, we have this statement that seems to confront us because it seems like there's this conflict. That if Jesus was really loving them, and if he really cared, that he wouldn't put them in harm's way. And ultimately, he wouldn't be able to say something like this. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. How is it that his friend being dead is somehow good for their sake? I just want you to wrestle with this for a moment because I think in the moment, the disciples, and definitely Martha and Mary, even though they're not on the scene yet, don't see that reality. Jesus doesn't do, see things the way we do. How can he possibly say that he wanted them, that it was for their sake? Well, he makes very clear at the very end that it was so that you may believe. Now, it might be that you're saying, well, maybe they had some doubts about who Jesus was. But then in the verse 16, we read this. So Thomas called the twin and his fellow disciples said, let us go also that we may die with him. In other words, they had enough faith to say, even though we might be risking our lives, we're willing to go with you, Jesus. They believe in him that much. And yet Jesus is saying that they still need to believe. And I think what we see in this verse and even in that statement is that though they believe there was a misunderstanding to their faith, there was an inadequacy to their faith that Jesus wanted to rectify, that he wanted to clarify. You see, Jesus sees his mission as not just to raise the dead, but to establish, clarify, and elevate their faith. He is not going to raise Lazarus from the dead merely to raise Lazarus from the dead, but from a grander and larger purpose and plan to establish and clarify the faith of these followers. And this was both his desire and in their best interest. Because they believed, but they didn't still understand the full glory of the one that they believed in. See, they knew something about Jesus, knew maybe he was even worth following even at death, but they didn't fully understand the full nature of the person that they were following, that the person that they believed in. And I think what stands out to me when I read this is that Jesus' value system is often very different than our own. The death of a friend, danger to him and his friends, are all for the purpose that you may believe. You see, he cared deeply about the clarity and the quality of their belief. I think there's the question I would ask you this morning, dear church. Do you share his value system? How often does strengthened faith of believers make it into your prayers? 
How often do we interpret the trials that we walk through in this lens? So often our minds are entirely focused on the circumstances surrounding us and not on the faith within. But what's really clear about this is that everything that's happening around us, Jesus is very clear. He will fix, he will handle. What he is primarily concerned about is the faith of those who are in the middle of the trial. And I just want to encourage you this morning. If in your prayers for people, we only pray for their healing, should we pray for their healing? Absolutely. We're commanded to and we should. If we pray for people and we're only worried about the jobs that they get or only worried about the directions that they get or they only worried about the situations and circumstances around us and we never move to pray that they would have a deeper and more real and more clear and more powerful and more concrete perception of who Jesus is, are we really operating and praying for the same things that Jesus seemed to be praying for and pursuing for his people? I think the answer is no. Also, when we have this lens, it also enables us to interpret trials that happen to us in very different ways. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says it this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness, or so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what the apostle sees, and I believe what Jesus sees, is that the refined faith of his followers is of more value, more weight, more precious than gold and fine jewels. Unfortunately, I think oftentimes, as God's people, we think that the primary thing he's wanting us to do is simply to be delivered from the circumstances that we're in. And I am certainly not saying don't pray for that, but value the thing that Jesus values. Lean into this reality that his desire for you is that your faith would be purified and refined until the point that it is precious because it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But next we move to the third act where we see Jesus points us to the resurrection and life. Jesus points us to the resurrection and the life. So Jesus has waited, then he said he's going to go, and then he goes. And so he's approaching Bethany. Again, I mentioned just a, a less than two miles outside of Jerusalem, okay? And Lazarus at this point has already been in the tomb for four whole days, okay? And he hasn't even made it into town, apparently. When word reaches Mary and Martha and the group that are, that are mourning in his home, in their home, when word reaches them, and in verse 20, we see this play out. So when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. Just like, let's dive in and imagine this moment for, with me for a moment. 
This is a Mary and Martha who had hosted Jesus in their home. Like they knew him well. They had broken bread with him. He was their close friend. They were confident enough to call to him, even though he was nowhere near, and say, come, the one you love is ill. They know him that well. And they had called him to come, and he hadn't come. He didn't come. And now their brother was dead. Jesus had failed them. They'd seen him open the eyes of the blind. They had heard about him. He just needed to be healed. If they had shown up the way they wanted him to, he would have been fine. But he didn't come. And now he's dead. And we hear all of that in Jesus' response in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear it? If you had been here, Lord, like we had asked you to, my brother would not have died. There's clearly angst. There's clearly accusation. There's clearly pain. But then in verse 22, she continues, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. I just want to commend to you Martha's response here for a moment. She does not understand why Jesus did not come. Have you ever been in a situation where you do not understand why Jesus did not respond to you the way that you had asked him to respond to you? If you have not yet, you will. We all do. It is a part of being a follower of Christ. You will call to him and he will not answer you the way you thought he should. And yet in this statement of pain, there is implicit faith. Even now, I know that you, whatever you ask the Father, he is going to do for you. What we call this is faith-seeking understanding. This is a man who does, a woman who does not understand what God's purposes are, what God's doing, but she knows that this guy can heal, that he has the power and that God will do whatever he asks. The Father will do whatever he asks. And I think if you are struggling with something right now, I just want to encourage you, approach God in this way. Be honest and yet be faithful. Struggle with the reality that you don't understand and yet cling to him. Because in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now it's interesting that he makes this statement because this is actually how you and I might encourage anyone who lost a believing family member, right? It's a theologically true statement. The hope of a Christian is not that one day they'll go to be with him and that they'll be with Jesus in a heaven and earth, but that they will have a new body, that they will be resurrected, right? And that is in the future. And so Jesus gives them this statement that's a theologically true statement. In the same way we would encourage someone that has lost a family member, 
And Martha knows this is true because in verse 24, she said, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Martha knows the truth of, truth of what Jesus is saying. She agrees with him. She recognizes because she's a good, well-taught lady that if, she, that if Lazarus believes, then he will one day be raised from the dead. Now, I want you to feel the power of what Jesus says here because it's easy to take these words that have become somewhat commonplace and not to feel the weight that Martha, Martha must have felt because Jesus, I don't know if he grabbed her face or if he just got our attention, but he says, no, Martha, you don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We are not talking about a future resurrection. We're talking about the reality that I am the resurrection and the life. What's happening here? Jesus is taking her understanding and her knowledge of the truth of the resurrection as a system. And he is focusing all of that faith on him. D.A. Carson says it this way, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. Christian faith is not a system or a belief in abstract truths. It is faith in a person. It is this idea that one day the dead will rise because Jesus Christ will command it. And that everyone that rises from the dead will rise not because we have a system that says that, but because Jesus Christ himself will command it and the dead will come to life. There is no other means, there is no other way that this is going to happen. It is going to happen by the person and the power and the call of Jesus You see, I think one of the things we have to be on guard against in any church, where, in any country, in any culture where biblical truth is prominent, where there's lots of good teaching, where you can kind of select your favorite podcast or your favorite online teacher, and that theology becomes a hobby instead of a means to seeing the glory of Christ. We don't believe a system. We believe a person. We don't study Jesus like a subject. We get to know him. And we begin to see that he is actually better than we thought he was. That he is actually more powerful. And that all of our theology centers on his person and his power. And Martha, she gets it. Because she says in verse 27, after he asked, do you believe? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In other words, not only but I, do I believe that, Jesus, but in order for that to be true, I have put it all together. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for for eons. Lord, the one your people have been longing for, you are the Son of God who is coming to the world. There is no other. You are it. She rightly was able to put together those strands, and if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then he is the Son of God who is coming into the world. And I think just we need to ask 
you need to ask, I need to ask the question that Jesus asks. After he makes this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The question is, do you believe this? All of the Christian faith is centered on this idea that it is not belief in a system, but it is belief in a person who has said that I am the resurrection and the life. And if he is not in the resurrection and the life, you are dead in your sins. That if he is not raised from the dead, you will not be raised from the dead. Because Jesus is not a mere philosopher. He is not a moral teacher. He is not a prophet. He is not Buddha. He is not um, Muhammad. He is not coming to give you a better way to live. He is coming to save you from your sins. He is coming to give you hope of a resurrection. And if he cannot do that, you are dead in your sins and you have no hope in the world because you are putting all of your eggs in this basket that he can actually deliver on what he's promised. And so you need to ask yourself today, and I don't know where you are in your Christian life. I know that you being here does not make you a Christian. I know that you watching this online does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian, what makes you a follower of Christ is do you really believe this? And if this is the case, can anybody else tell? And that brings us to our fourth scene or act in this unfolding story. Jesus' pain at their misunderstanding. Jesus' pain at their misunderstanding. Now, I want to mention this because if I was telling this story, I get that climactic statement, I'm going straight into the resurrection, right? I'm going straight into him, Jesus bringing him back from the dead. But that's not what John does. It's interesting. So what happens next is that Jesus tells Martha, go get Mary, Mary Uh, Martha brings Mary. Mary comes to Jesus. And then we read in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have we heard this before? Yes. Obviously, they had talked about this together. (laughs) Same exact response. The only difference is that Mary's emotional stress seems to be greater. There's no statement of belief. She just falls at his feet. I think we even see it in the fact that when she heard Jesus was coming, she didn't go to see Jesus. She stayed right where she was and mourned and wept. And I think it's important to see that that though she was weeping and her words were the same, she was weeping and she was grieving as those who have no hope. And I think it's, you have to remember that to understand Jesus' response in verse 33 when we read, Now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, It's easy to think what's happening here is simply Jesus' experiencing of their pain, but I want to peel it back a little bit more because I think there's more going on here. See, that word deeply moved that we see in the Scripture, it actually in Greek is this idea of indignation. 
And so Jesus was very clearly frustrated by a little bit of this response. Frustrated and grieved at the same time. Isn't it good to know that we can have complex feelings? It's not as if it's just one or the other. It's not like, oh, it's all happy and it's all good or it's terrible. The reality of the Bible is the reality and the Jesus that we worship is a complex Jesus. And so the, 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 the deeply stirred emotions that are coming out of him are both frustration, indignation, and grief. Now, why would there be frustration or indignation? Well, you could say, and I think it's true, that he is frustrated and indignant at the reality of death right, of the evil of death. He is weighted down by that. But I don't think that's it. I think it's very clear that in Mary's response, she did not think that the resurrection and the life that was standing in front of her could do anything to help her brother. And so even in their response and even in their weeping, they were weeping, but there was no hope in their weeping. And so I think it's because of that, because of this clear misunderstanding of who Jesus is and the hope that he offers, that he is indignant after all that he's done. But even in that indignation, even in that anger, there's clearly also a deep level of grief. Now, what is his grief at? Is his grief at Lazarus has died? Well, no, because we know he's coming to take care of that. So what is his grief in? Church, there's only thing... The only one thing is grief could be in. There's only reason that could cause and elicit this, this, this weeping. And it is because of the reality, even in their misunderstanding of what was happening, the reality of the grief of those he loved. And I do think it's important to recognize that when Jesus wept, he didn't weep again because he had no hope. He wept for those that he loved that were weeping still. And I just think this contrast is powerful. Despite who Jesus is and despite the hope that he offers and their misunderstanding, Jesus is not just angry, he weeps. And even the contrast, I think, is meant to be powerful that the life, the resurrection and the life, the hope of the resurrection and the life, the power of the resurrection and life is found weeping over death. And I think this is a healthy reminder that loving someone isn't simply giving them the theologically right answer in the midst of their suffering. I think we can often sometimes think that it's loving to simply give somebody the right answer. And as Christians, we're often guilty of that. Just giving them the right answer and then they should be able to get over it. But that's not how Jesus handles the reality of death here. He feels the full weight of the death. And even though he is giving them the theologically right answer, he is not doing that alone. He is also weeping with them. And I'm just going to say this. I don't think Christians are known, and I'm going to even put myself in this category, for empathizing and weeping well with those who weep. Often we, we want to run straight to the answer and we don't want to just deal with the reality of the pain of the problem that we're receiving. And I just want to maybe put this as a constant and just a call out there for us as a people. We want to be a church. We want to be a people who weep with those who weep. Do we have hope? Do we grieve as those who have no hope? Of course not. But, oh, church, if we love, we should weep with those who weep. 
And we should rejoice with those who rejoice. And that brings us to our fifth and final act or scene in this unfolding story of Jesus' glory where we see Jesus' power is revealed. Jesus' power is revealed. Or you could say Jesus' glory is revealed. But then it wouldn't be a piece. So I went with power. In verse 38, we read this. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And I, I want to say that deeply moved is the same word we saw a few verses earlier. And it's a, it's a deeply moved indignation. It's a deeply moved grief. And it moves him to come to the tomb. This is not an impartial observer. And it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by the time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, hopefully not, like they didn't have like graveyards like we have. So like dead people were put in tombs which were made up of caves and they would put a big stone on it, like similar to the one we know about in Jesus' resurrection. That's not, that was not like just what happened to Jesus when he died. That's what happened to most people when they died. And we see that very clearly because that's what happened to Lazarus. And I, and I can't help but laugh at this response from Martha, right? Anybody had an older sister? This is what she would have done. All right, Lord, I don't know if you know, but there's going to be an odor and there's a lot of people around here. So I don't know if this is a good idea. And in one sense, it's humorous, but in another sense, it's actually pretty powerful because he's been dead for four days, which means his body is decaying, which means at this point, parts of his body that were alive had reached the point of decay where there was going to be smell. That's how dead he was. He was dead, dead. And I just think it helps us recognize the glory of what's about to happen when you realize he's been gone long enough for the body to decay. And then in verse 40, we read this. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Y'all, if you want to know what the point of this story if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Now, and I also think in this statement, we see the difference between this sign and every other sign Jesus has done. Did Jesus, in any other of the previous signs, need faith in order to perform the sign? Healing the lame man, healing the blind man, no. He may have asked him to do something, but he just healed them right? He just turned the water to Ryan. He just healed the blind man. Why here is it so different? And I think there's an important point here. This is not meant to produce faith in those who have none. It's intended to show those who have faith how they grant and how they grow in their understanding of who Jesus is through faith. And they grow in their understanding of his glory. It was their believing that enabled their beholding of his glory. And I think this morning, if you aren't seeing Jesus as glorious, if when you come to church and you know and you sing songs about Jesus, you're feeling like, I need to kind of work something up, or I need, I think Jesus should be amazing to me, I think Jesus should be important to me, I think Jesus should be powerful to me, but he's not, 
I want to submit to you, it's not because he needs to give you additional signs of his glory. He needs to do something else for you that he hasn't already done in order to establish and clarify your faith. The problem is you need to believe. The problem is that the weakness of your faith is not enabling you to see the full glory of who he is. That doesn't mean you're not a believer. It does mean that if you want to see his glory more clearly, oh, church, believe more. And then in verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard from me, that you have heard me, that, that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I love this. Jesus could step at this point and command Lazarus to come forth, but in humility, he actually goes before the Father first and prays. He wants it to be very clear. First, I just love the way he talks to the Father. There's this intimacy there. I know that you always hear me, but I'm praying this for them so that they may believe that you sent me. So even in this act of what he's about to do, even in this act of, of this sign, he wants to make sure that they understand that he was sent by the Father, that he is aligned and endorsed by the Father. And then in verse 43, we read this. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. With the mere words, Lazarus come forth, this dead, lifeless body whose heart was not beating, whose skin was decaying, whose, whose skin was cold, began to have life coursing through his body. His, his heart started beating. The blood started flowing. And the once dead body came back to life. And church, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that there is no greater sign of the power of God than when he commands what is impossible and it comes into being. When he spoke the world into being, he spoke it into being by his command. When he calls you and I to himself, he calls you and I to himself, and in his call, he actually gives us the power we need to respond to his command. You and I don't come to Jesus as dead men and women, dead in our trespasses and sins by our strength, but because when he calls, he gives you through his call the spiritual power you need in order to be able to respond to him. That is the only way that you and I respond to a sovereign God when we go from death to life. It is through the power of his call. And then in John 10, when Jesus said, I know my sheep and I call them by name, I want you to think about this. What he is saying is that for you to come to him, he had to call you specifically to himself in the same way he called Lazarus. And there was nothing less dramatic or less miraculous in his calling you to himself than his call of Lazarus to come forth. At some point, he had to say, Dan, come out. He had to say, Beth, come out. 
He had to say, Lois, come out. Joe, come out. Jeff, come out. Mark, come out. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without hope and without God in the world. It is the miraculous power of the voice of Jesus that is our hope. That he will bring us from death to life spiritually and that one day our dead and bodies that maybe at that point nothing but dust will become alive so that we may walk on this world again and if he does not have that power there is nothing that he can offer us and we are dead in our trespasses and sins this is the fulfillment of john 5 25 where jesus says truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live this is really the pinnacle sign of the gospel of john he's not turning water into wine anymore He's not healing sick people. He's not healing lame people. He's not making blind people see as amazing as all those are. Here he sets his final seal on who he is when he makes a dead man come to life. And I think what he wants you to see is that everyone who believes this will one day see him in all his glory. This is our Jesus. And it is as his command that the dead are raised. And our only hope in this life is that he is the resurrection and the life. You see, church, Jesus loves his, two, his followers too much to allow them to continue with weak and meager and inadequate views and versions of who he is. If this had never happened... They would have believed in him, but they wouldn't have had any clue of the power of the one they believed in. And we need this because a weak and inadequate Jesus, one who is, isn't glorious or isn't powerful or isn't good, will destroy our joy in this world. It will weaken our worship. It will leave us susceptible to the world's temptations. It will retard our growth. Because if we know God, our heart's desire should be with Moses, O oh Lord, show me your glory. And so pray and make it your prayer and aim with Jesus that you would be a people, that you would be a person that increasingly believe and behold his glory. So that what Paul writes will be true of you, that we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, may be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. Amen. Father, what kind of people are we that you would do what you've done for us in Jesus? We are nothing. We are no people, Lord. We do not deserve it. And yet, Lord, you have called us not only from darkness to light, but you want us to see and to know the God of life. And Lord, we pray if there are any in the room who don't know you and their religion has been a dead system, it's been a bunch of things that they think they should know and agree to and has not been a personal and powerful response to Jesus, 
a full trusting in him that he is the resurrection and the life, a placing of all of their hope in him. We pray that you would convict them this day, that they would not leave this room and that they would speak to me, Father, so that they may come and to know and walk with Jesus and walk with the resurrection and the life. And Father, we pray for those who do know the resurrection and the life, that we would see him with greater clarity and that our lives would reflect him, Lord, and that our lives would and our eyes would see and grow in our ability to behold his glory. And we ask all of this in the holy and the power and the precious name of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Amen.